Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karan Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high-growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. In this episode, we will be speaking with Ram Ramanan, who's a vice president at Bloom Energy, which is a public company headquartered in California that's one of the leaders in developing hydrogen technology and hydrogen electrolyzers. In this conversation, we discuss Ram's career pathway, his perspective on hiring engineers, and the economics of hydrogen technology. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ram Ramanan. Thank you, Mr. Ramanan, for taking the time. I've been really excited to speak with you, and I'm excited to learn about your career journey, the work you're doing in the space. And for listeners who may be unfamiliar, can you provide a brief background on Bloom Energy and walk us through how the opportunity to join Bloom came about? Thank you, Karan. It's a pleasure doing this podcast with you. So Bloom Energy is is a green energy company that is trying to change the way energy is distributed in the world and also how it's produced. Our current baseline is that we have these large utility companies which are providing electricity for us. And just like the way what happened with computers, telecommunications, everything went from a centralized location to becoming more distributed. That's what made all these different technologies scale. Bloom Energy is doing the same thing for energy to help you produce it locally. And so you are in charge of your own energy. So that makes it cleaner. It makes it safer. And also it is the, it's a way in which the whole world is moving towards. My background and my job responsibility at Bloom Energy relies on basically helping Bloom Energy become a leader by doing some cutting-edge research and development, data sciences, modeling, and simulations, so we can you know, make this technology really affordable, cost-effective, and also perform at the highest levels of efficiency. I have a PhD in mechanical engineering and came into this field about 15 to 16 years ago into the energy space. Before that, I was an executive in the semiconductor equipment area, worked for large companies like Applied Materials, making semiconductor equipment. And before that, I was in the engineering software industry, writing um, heavy-duty scientific computing softwares. Got it. Thank you for expanding on that. How exactly did the opportunity to join Bloom Energy come about? So that's actually an interesting question because 
Before coming to Bloom Energy, I actually was in Texas working for a semiconductor company. And I was also doing some consulting work. And I happened to come here to Applied Materials for a consulting work in the Bay Area. And they offered me a job. And um, I was pretty excited because Applied Materials is, as you know, is one of the semiconductor equipment makers that really made the whole semiconductor industry move into a much more profitable business. They showed the whole world how you can make high precision equipment, but still make money with it. I joined Applied Materials and I was very happy there because I was leading a very large team, working with a Japanese joint venture and used to go to Japan quite often. So it was exciting. But one day, one of my colleagues at Applied Materials forwarded a job description to me from a local startup. And he said that this job description looks like it's a perfect fit for you. So I was curious. I just read through the job description. It was as if I sat down and I wrote my ideal job that I would like to do. I was intrigued by it. So I decided to give you know, the recruiter a call. And the next thing that I know, I was there at Bloom Energy talking over lunch. I don't know, over the next five or six working days, lunch meetings, meeting with everybody from the CEO to the CTO to most of the engineers. And, and I was hooked by the mission, the mission of really making technology provide affordable electricity for everybody in the world. And as you know, in Bay Area, it is the whole, you know, the birthplace of all the venture capitalists and startups. And so you just get caught up in that fever of doing something exciting and fun and making a difference in the world. So that's how we joined Bloom Energy. That's amazing. So at the time, how big was the Bloom Energy team? I mean, because it was a startup, I'm imagining that the hiring decisions had a pretty high level of importance given that, you know, they were just starting out, probably very careful about who they wanted to bring in to the team. And given that, I'm curious as to what those conversations look like and why you think ultimately they did decide to extend you an offer. Typically, when the startups like Bloom Energy start, they really want to get people with a lot of experience who have worked in other industries, who have proven experience so they can walk in and be able to you know, drive the project from beginning to end. And you have to be able to wear multiple hats. You have to be able to think creatively. And you have to be able to go and hire the right team of people under you so you can make the projects happen. And, and because of the experience that I had before in working two different industries, engineering, software, and also semiconductor industry, they felt that I could come here and create some global teams. And we had about, at that time, I would say maybe 100 to 150 people. We had just gotten our, I believe, the Series B or Series C money. So we were ready to start building the teams. And so it was really a perfect opportunity for me to come in. And I started to look for then my network of people, you know, some with 
similar experience as me, but who could compliment me. And also some younger people who have the energy and the drive that we could train so we can just set up the next phase of the company. Yeah, I think what I was trying to get at with that question was because currently there are a lot of new energy startups with a lot of venture capital flowing into the space. And I know that a lot of listeners are currently people who are interested in entering the field. So I was trying to understand a little bit about the psychology of the people who are running the startup and what you felt as someone who wanted to join that company helped differentiate you from other candidates. And what I'm hearing is your experience aligned really well with the job opportunity. Are there any other soft skills that you think stood out in that process? I think so. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think many people have technical skills. Um, To be able to do well and survive in a startup um, requires you to be willing to take risks. You need to be fearless so you can try out new ideas. You have to be creative and you will constantly face a lot of obstacles because you're trying to do something new that nobody has done before. So the willingness to accept failures and the willingness to wake up next day and think of five more new ideas to try and keep trying because failure is not an option. When you're a startup, you typically have only one product you're making. If you are a large company like a General Electric or General Motors, even if that one project fails, the company will move on. It'll still make its revenue. But in a startup, that one product that you're working on has to make it work. And you have to figure out how to make it work. So I think that is the key skill I think that people will be looking for. The perseverance, the creativity, the willingness to take risks, and also passionate about the vision of the company. Because if you have the passion and the energy, and I think everything else comes with it. Given that you had a pretty well-established job at the time with an established company, what was your mindset as you were engaging in those conversations with Bloom Energy? Were there any fears? Absolutely. (laughs) In fact, uh, when I had moved from Texas to California, I was Of course, California is an expensive place to live in, right? And I was a sole breadwinner for the family. My wife had quit her job. So it was a huge risk. You know, I was quite afraid of going from this very well-established company. And I had just recently gotten the biggest bonus that I have ever seen in my life. So it was a huge risk. But I've always believed that if you want to do the right thing, And irrespective of what the risks are, if you're willing to jump in, trust yourself and go in, good things will come out. Because if you don't take risks, you're not going to grow. And anytime you feel the discomfort, I think that's a place of growth. So I did have that fear. But then I said, in case the startup doesn't work out, I still have my technical skills to go up and find another job within the Bay Area. And if I didn't take that risk now, I might come back to regret later. 
And I'm glad that I took that risk, right? Otherwise, if I'd stayed at Applied Materials and I look at myself in 15 years later, oh my God, I wish I had been in Global Energy. I wish I had gone to make a difference in the world. Not to take away anything from Applied Materials. It's a great company. That makes so much sense. Thank you so much for expanding on that. I think now it would be a great time to dive into some of Bloom Energy's incredible work leading the clean technology and emerging technology front in the climate space. And for those who may be unfamiliar, can you please provide some insight into Bloom's work in hydrogen and why this technology is important for facilitating a low carbon future? Bloom Energy actually started off by making hydrogen as a fuel to be able to run fuel cells and produce electricity. And for those of people who know about the fuel cell background, hydrogen is the main fuel that was used if you look at any of the textbooks because it's a clean way to produce electricity. And the electrochemical reaction basically converts hydrogen and oxygen into water so it's one of the cleanest ways to produce electricity. But at the time when Bloom started, more than 17, 18 years back, there was very little hydrogen available. So we had to make our own hydrogen. And the only fuel that was available were the hydrocarbons, the fossil fuels. And of the fossil fuels, the one that's the cleanest of all of them is methane. So it's got one carbon atom and four hydrogen atoms. So we could take the methane and we were able to do what's called a steam reforming, where you add steam to it, you can break that up into hydrogen and carbon monoxide. So it's a chemical reaction that we created within our fuel cell so that then we can take that product and create electricity with it. And the result of that was one of the world's highest efficiencies of converting natural gas into electricity. So today, our systems run on the order of 61 to 62% electrical efficiency based on what's called lower heating value of the natural gas. But the whole technology started from hydrogen. But now that the world is moving from low carbon to zero carbon, we basically you know, took the wrappers off and we have also have a hydrogen-based fuel cell that's actually running in Korea right now. We have started selling those as well. And we also got into the business of doing the other side, which is taking water and using the same technology, break the water into hydrogen and oxygen. So that is the so-called the electrolyzer product. And interestingly, the components and the machinery and everything that's that we have built over the last 15 to 20 years is applicable for making electricity, making hydrogen as well as making electricity. It's a very simple chemical reaction, right? Hydrogen plus oxygen gives you water. If you go the other way around, you provide energy, you can break the water into hydrogen and oxygen. So right now we are in both of those areas. 
we can produce water, we can, we can produce electricity, or we can produce hydrogen. Either one of those is possible. Or you can even have installations where you do both as well. Very interesting. Just building off that, what differentiates Bloom's hydrogen technology from that of other companies working in this area? Yeah, good question. I mean, if you really look at the field, the alkaline-based technologies that have been around for a long period of time. Now, we also have two new technologies. One is the, the PEM, or proton-electron membrane electrolyzer, as well as the solid oxide electrolyzer, like the type that Bloom Energy is making. The difference between these technologies comes to the operational efficiency. For the amount of energy that you want to put in to the system and how much hydrogen that you can make, there is a unit what's called how many kilograms of hydrogen you produce for each unit of electricity that you put in, each kilowatt hour of energy. So if you look at it in that context, Bloom Energy has some of the highest operational efficiencies. So when you buy an electrolyzer and start operating it, your main cost is going to be the energy that you're going to be putting into it and how much hydrogen are you going to produce. So in the long run, if you have the lowest maintenance cost, lowest operational cost, that's what gives you the best economics. So that is the main advantage. Understood. Given that I'm still learning about hydrogen technology and assume that a lot of listeners might have heard the term and have heard that it will be vital to help decarbonize those hard-to-abate sectors in the future, such as steel production and concrete production and other hard-to-abate areas which renewable energy by itself may not be able to help lower the carbon output for but still not fully understanding exactly the different use cases between electrolyzers, the electrolyzers that you mentioned, and then hydrogen as its own fuel source, I guess. But can you provide a little bit more insight into the different applications of hydrogen and the differentiation between those? Absolutely. A good reference for Many of your listeners could be uh, the recent book by John Doerr, Speed and Scale, where he totally lays out how much of CO2 is there in the world and how we are going to reduce it. But if I were to break this down, one of the biggest components is transportation. As you know, there are a lot of battery electric vehicles now in the market, which is helping us to reduce the pollution. That is one source. There are also hydrogen-based transportation systems. You know, some of these large buses and trucks, if we can convert many of those to run on hydrogen, then what comes out in the exhaust is going to be just steam, not carbon dioxide. So that is one big application area. So these hydrogen that we are producing at these different locations just like the way you go to a gas pump, you will have a hydrogen pump that will have pressurized hydrogen that will put into your system. 
So you could run the whole transportation industry using hydrogen. So that'll be one of the things that will be coming. The way in which the industry is moving first is by looking at the larger transportation systems like buses and trucks and things like that. Then we will move slowly into cars. Maybe we'll have a combination of both battery electric vehicles as well as hydrogen-based. You know, I just recently read that even Tesla is thinking about hydrogen-based cars. Toyota already has one. You know, Toyota Mirai is a hydrogen-based car. So that is one application area. Another big application area, as you said, is the whole process industry, steel making, any type of um, process industry, which is using a lot of fuel, you know, to either for heating or creating those high temperatures that you need for making the stuff, you could use hydrogen as a fuel instead of oil or natural gas. So that'll be a second industry. The other industry, which not many people know about, which also consumes, uh, produces a lot of CO2, is the agriculture industry. Agriculture is, you know, for example, ammonia is needed for fertilization. And if you could get green hydrogen, you can combine it with nitrogen, you can create green ammonia. So that's a huge area as well. And all of these combined will be able to get us towards a zero carbon. But in addition to that, there's also move towards taking the CO2 that's in the atmosphere and then capturing it and putting it into the ground. This is one of the things that John Doerr talks about. There are many companies that are coming out that just pulls the air, removes the CO2. So if you want to get to totally a zero carbon, you really also have to remove what we put out there as well. Honing in on hydrogen versus green hydrogen, can you provide a little insight into what the difference between regular hydrogen is and what maybe blue hydrogen is and what green hydrogen is? It's kind of interesting. If you go look at it, there's so many different colors of hydrogen. (laughs) So if you take just the fossil fuel hydrocarbons and you just break them down and remove the carbon out of it, you can create what's called gray hydrogen. So the petrochemical industry does this, even at the time when you um, get the oil and gas out of the ground, they have ways in which where the hydrogen comes as a byproduct. And you can also do some additional work to break the hydrocarbon into hydrogen. Or you could even take biogas, you know, from the whole wastewater or from the coal agricultural industry where, you know, they take cow manure, create biogas, you can break that into hydrogen as well and remove the carbon out of it. So that's a gray hydrogen. Green hydrogen is when you break the water into hydrogen and oxygen. And to do that, you need some energy. And typically, the energy that everybody is looking into is the excess renewable energy that we have today. Some of your listeners may have heard that during the day, we get a lot of sun, and sometimes there is some excess energy during the day. We could take that excess solar energy, or when the wind is blowing hot, take that extra wind energy, use that to be able to split the water into green hydrogen. So what I'm hearing is 
the way hydrogen has been produced over the last many years has been through a byproduct of oil extraction and gas extraction, which then oil and gas companies have been providing for its various applications and has been feeding those companies who need hydrogen for, for example, you know, producing steel or cement production. However, now there's a new potential way to create hydrogen to fill those applications, just called green hydrogen. And the way to do that is to break water molecules using renewable electricity to produce hydrogen. Absolutely. And Bloom Energy works across all of those areas. Yeah, Bloom Energy works across producing green hydrogen, but when it comes to producing electricity, we can use any fuel that's available today. If you look at the world today, almost 95% of world's energy comes from fossil fuels. So if you want to go towards a zero carbon, we need a ramp towards from 95% to zero. And that's not going to happen overnight. So the charter of companies like Bloom Energy, when we started 15 years ago, was to get companies to adopt and reduce that, the amount of CO2 that goes out into the air, reduce it by almost half by creating electricity in a more efficient way. So we use natural gas for that. Now we are recognizing that people want to move faster towards zero carbon. So we are also producing that hydrogen. Now, once we are able to capitalize on both of that, we can make this transition really quicker and faster. So whether it's 2030 or 2040 or 2050, depending on whose roadmap that you look at, we really need all of these different technologies to get there. So was Bloom Energy the first company to develop this new method for producing hydrogen? I think the, the SOAC technology, there are many companies now in the world that are putting it together. I think the difference that Bloom Energy brings to the market is that we have installed almost one gigawatt of solid oxide fuel cells. And it takes the same technology to reverse it and create hydrogen. So because of the large uh, install capacity and the experience in both the technology and the supply chain. Bloom Energy right now has got almost on the order of uh, one and a half to two gigawatts of manufacturing capacity of these electrolyzers. So, you know, we're pretty excited. In fact, last year, we won one of the awards that was given out by, I forget who, um, for the most promising technology for our electrolyzer. So it's pretty exciting. Um, there are many players in this, and um, I'm hopeful that Bloom will come out to be one of the leaders because of our experience in this area. For sure. I'm curious to hear your perspective on what you feel the major hurdles for renewable hydrogen or green hydrogen to scale and how long you feel it will take for that technology to ultimately become the leading technology as opposed to natural gas produced hydrogen? That's an interesting question. 
I think the obstacles wise, the technology is here. It simply comes down to how quickly we have the adoption. How quickly can we get people to switch from the fossil fuels into hydrogen? Europe is already moving very fast in this regard. Korea is another country that's moving very rapidly in this area. Korea has had some very severe pollution issues, so they're very motivated to do this. It's a small island. I think it just comes down to people like DOE and the government making strides towards faster adoption of this. The technology is here, and there's a higher recognition of the impact of the climate. And people like John Doerr making Stanford as a hub here in the Bay Area for sustainable and clean energy with this new grant that is put in. I think all of these things will really drive us towards it. And the whole VC community too, because, you know, I just heard the statistics that VC community is probably puts in less than half a percent of the GDP and they are responsible for 20 to 25 percent of the jobs created in the U.S. So I think those are pretty exciting. There are so many VC companies investing in low carbon and zero carbon. So I think that it'll, it'll, we will get there quickly. I think there's a tremendous amount of momentum behind it. And I think that in the last couple of years, the amount of VC money has increased by a factor of four to five. So it's like a hockey stick. Understood. Taking a step back and reflecting on your own career journey, we did briefly talk prior to this conversation about the importance of meditation and how that early in your career really helped you navigate the later stages of your career and also made you a more effective manager. And what I would love to learn whether you have any advice for your younger self, any professional advice specifically. Yeah, I think really good question, Karan, because if I were to look at my 24-year-old self, what would I have told myself, you know, in hindsight? And this is what, you know, when I mentor young engineers, this is what I tell them. We spend a lot of time on technical skills and very little time on soft skills and also learning the skills on how to increase your EQ the emotional quotient. When you work in some of these difficult environments, like where we are living in today, where you got all kinds of pressures coming from multiple directions, you need to be able to know how to calm yourself down so you can think clearly. So I was lucky that when I was in Texas, I ran into a meditation or a mindfulness and a breathwork program called the Art of Living Foundation. I just kind of happened to get into it because I was quite stressed out at work and I was an individual contributor wanting to become a manager. Um, I had all the technical skills, but I absolutely didn't have the skill sets to manage my own mind and also know how to interact with people. So the breathwork and the meditation really helped me come out of my shell and in a sense establish better relationships, both at work and at home. So I've relied on that very heavily. And when I made the transition come from Texas into Bay Area, and I noticed that 
it was a totally different place. The stress levels in the Bay Area and the work pressures are significantly higher than what it was in Texas. If I didn't have the meditation and the breath work, I don't know how long I would have survived, <laughs> honestly. And my willingness to take the risk to move from a comfortable position to the startup also came because I felt that I had support, both from my family and also from inside of me to tackle these things. So I would advise any young engineer to take some time for lifelong learning skills. And one of the life skills that everybody can learn is meditation and breath work. And just taking a little bit of time every day. It's kind of like the analogy that my teacher tells me is like, if you want to shoot an arrow fast, far, you have to pull it back first. So in the same way, if you really want your mind to give you the most, then you really need to go inward to be able to get that energy. So you can go drink as much Starbucks coffee as you want, but it keeps getting more expensive. It's like $6 a cup today, but it's a lot cheaper <laughs> if you learn how to meditate and take a little bit of that time, 10 or 15 minutes a day, to reflect inward, to be able to meditate you will find that you'll be a lot more productive. And that's been my, my key. Even now, I'm actually, I'm doing multiple things. I'm learning to play the guitar. I teach both in the companies and, and also in the communities, breathwork. I have my day job at Bloom Energy, sometimes weekends too. But I have energy for all of that because of what I do. Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been extremely interesting and also educational. So thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.